had the opportunity on, on Friday to take a little plane ride with Pastor Henry. He called me um, Friday afternoon. I was just getting done with my sermon, and he said, is your sermon all done? And I said, yes, as a matter of fact. I just put the finishing touches on it, and on my slideshow, he said, how'd you like to go up in the plane? So I said, yeah, I think I'd like that. And so scrambled down to his house, and we took a little flight around the area and looked at the beautiful colors, and uh, it was just a really therapeutic. It was great. But I was thankful that he's such a good pilot and smooth pilot, and that he didn't do any crazy things like loop-de-loops and <laughs> making me throw up <laughs> by dive-bombing or whatever. But I'm told that in, the, in years past that, um, there, that there was an exercise that some pilots actually go through late in their flight training. And a student pilot gets the plane airborne at a cruising altitude, and the instructor then makes him go blind. They used to put loose-fitting, thick-woven sacks over their heads so that the students could see nothing. And then the instructor takes the controls and puts that plane into dive bombs and loops and pushes the plane skyward and flips it over. And then he gets the student utterly discombobulated. Then he puts the plane in a suicide dive, plucks the bag off the student's head and hands him the controls and says, okay, it's your job to get the plane back under control. You know what that exercise is called? There's actually a name for it. I'm sure Henry knows what it is. Recovering from an unusual attitude. <laughs> About 60 or so years after the ascension of Christ, the Apostle Peter wrote these words. In 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 7 through 11, our text today, for the culmination of all things is near... So be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of prayers. Above all, keep your love for one another fervent because love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without complaining. Just as each one has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of the very grace of God. Whoever speaks, let it be with God's words. Whoever serves, do so with the strength that God supplies so that in everything God will be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him belong the glory and the power forever and ever. Amen. So here, in a very condensed and concentrated presentation, is an urgent call to us, a wake-up call, a pressing exhortation from a devoted Christian leader to a congregation deep in the thick of living out their faith in the midst of a world teetering on the edge. His purpose is to awaken believers to the seriousness of their responsibilities in light of the fact that Christ could return at any time. Now, without a lot of verbiage, Peter unloads his urgent charge, and he basically says this, serious times demand a serious faith. Now, the title I've chosen for this short mini-series that we've embarked on begs a sobering question of all of us. Are we taking our faith seriously enough. And I ask it of myself as well. I just spent uh, yesterday, uh, a few of us went down to East Auburn Baptist Church who hosted uh, a Voice of the Martyrs conference, advance. And there were some speakers there from places like Pakistan and Iran and China, places where the gospel and Christians are persecuted heavily. 
And when I listened to them and I sat there and I saw them in person and I saw what they were doing and through videos and slides, what they were up against. And then I asked myself this question. Am I taking my faith seriously enough? I was quite convicted. Because this morning, in light of Peter's words, I'm convinced that if we're going to get serious about our faith, most of us first have to recover from an unusual attitude. It's clear, as a believer in Christ, we need to ask ourselves, how is our life in relationship to God, in relationship to the church, in relationship to the rest of the world? Are we breathing? Are we barely breathing? Do you often find yourself disoriented, experiencing emotional vertigo, dizzy with the busyness of life and flying on a collision course with time? Depending on how frequently you fly, you may recognize the following announcement. In the event that our cabin pressure should change, an oxygen mask will be released from the overhead compartment. Place the oxygen mask on yourself first before helping small children or others who need assistance. How many of you heard that flight safety message? Millions of times, right? If you've flown at all. And yet I watched a video this week of an aircraft whose engine blew up in flight shortly after takeoff. Shrapnel went through the window, sucking one woman halfway out of the plane. The oxygen mass came down and everywhere as far as I could see in that video, people were putting on the oxygen masks incorrectly. And yet every time you fly, they tell you exactly how to do it, but nobody's paying attention, right? It's part of every flight attendant's pre-flight drill covering safety procedures. And as author Kerry Shook observes, the rationale for such instructions is obvious. You can't help anyone else if you've passed out from a lack of oxygen yourself. And that's why you put it on yourself first. Incidentally, these words also serve as a powerful metaphor of spiritual truth. If you and I are going to make the most of our time on this earth, providing helpful, life-saving spiritual assistance to those around us, then we need to first get serious about the faith we're living. If we're barely breathing spiritually, how in the world will we move beyond ourselves to help anyone else? Face it, friends, for the most part, the world is in a tailspin. And the oxygen masks are dangling before us, so to speak. The question is, what will we do with them where the lifeline of spiritual communication with God and each other is often severely interrupted? Eventually, as one author put it, the forces of opposition will weaken and destroy the church. It is a crucial message then that in the local church, members must be strong, united, unified, clear-minded, and self-controlled, and bound by love to one another if they are to stand firm in the face of an opposing cultural climate. Serious times demand a serious faith. Are we really serious? And in fact... What are the evidences that we are? If you say yes, 
What are the evidences? If we're taking our Christianity seriously, Peter says, this is what it's going to look like in this passage. If you're not there, turn to 1 Peter 4, verses 7 to 11. Here's what it is. I'm going to give it to you in a nutshell the next three weeks. We will think clearly. We will live prayerfully. We will love each other fervently. We will embrace each other cheerfully. Serve each other faithfully and honor God continuously. That's all right here, 1 Peter 4, 7 through 11. That's the outline. So now you can flesh it out. First thing we're going to look at today, we're just going to look at two today. Number one is think clearly. We need to think clearly. Manifest a bold perspective. That's verse 7 in 1 Peter 4. The end of all things is near. Let's just end right there. That's enough to take for now, isn't it? The end of all things is near. How many of you believe it? Careful when you raise your hand now because Peter's going to call us to something else if you really do believe it. What's Peter saying? Is he asking us, telling us that we need to become all a bunch of uh, end-time fanatics, millennium madmen propagating a fear-based message that attempts to scare people into submission? Not on your life. That's not what Peter's saying. Peter previously commenting on the fact that persecutors of the church will face guaranteed judgment one day is reminding his readers and us that that day is not that far off. In fact, the very increase of Christian persecution signifies and confirms the return of Christ draws near. And as I heard yesterday in that conference, there's been more persecuted Christians in the last few years than there has in the entire existence of Christendom combined since the church began. That's an increase, isn't it? What does it signify? That the end of all things is near. It's at hand. The word end here is not used in the New Testament to refer to a chronological end. As if it all stops. Rather, it carries the sense of consummation, an achieved goal, the full realization of something. In other words, Peter's injecting a note of urgency here into our practice of Christian living. He's not setting dates, and neither should we. But the one thing that we can be sure of is that as the world spins more and more out of spiritual balance, it testifies to the nearness of Christ's return, at which time Christians will experience the consummation of their salvation. And then that day, we're going to leave our struggles behind. Romans chapter 13. Let me read it to you. Romans chapter 13 in verses 11 through 14, if you'd like to follow along with me. Verse 11, Romans 13. Do this, Paul says, Knowing the time that it is already the hour for you to awaken from sleep, for now salvation is nearer to us than when we believed. The night is almost gone, and the day is near. Therefore, let us lay aside the deeds of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us behave properly as in the day, not in carousing and drunkenness, not in sexual promiscuity, not in sensuality, not in strife or jealousy. But put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh in regard to its lusts. 
Now, you ever read the accounts or watch the captured video of passengers on a plane that's going down, like I said that I just did recently? When that plane's going down, what are people doing? They're praying. Or worse, they're panicking. But are people ordering drinks? They're not ordering drinks. They're not flirting with the person sitting next to them on the plane, planning their next sexual conquest. Are they stewing over the latest gossip or personal rift that they have with someone at their office or at their church at that point in time when the plane's going down? Are they doing any of those things? Obviously not. They're not. You see, the problem that we have in the 21st century church is much the same as in the contemporary world. It's not much different. It's twofold problem. Number one, I don't think most people believe that the end of all things is at hand. Not really. So we live our faith like it will not happen, at least not in our lifetimes. Am I right? Or am I meddling? The second problem is that, and I'm talking to me, the same as you. I'm putting myself right with you. The second problem is that so much time has lapsed since Christ's first coming that we become a bit dull and a bit indifferent to the truth that Jesus is coming again. Those two things. Now, the Bible says, however, that Christ's return for his church is imminent. You know what that word means? Imminent means? It means it could happen at any time. There's no prophecies left to be fulfilled. No signs to be given. No events on the prophetic calendar to take place that we can point to, that we can watch for, that we can alert us to the day and the hour. In short, it could happen today. Do you believe that? It could happen today. Would you be ready for it if it happened today? I've done this before, but I'll do it again for you people that have never heard it before. But there's a little experiment that I like to do to see how ready you really are. So I'm going to ask for a show of hands now to these questions. I need complete honesty. Complete honesty. How many of you want to go to heaven when you die? Okay. Put your hands down. Now I want you to be honest. How many of you want to die today? Big discrepancy. Theologian Neil Plantinga notes that although Jesus asked us to pray for his kingdom to come, many of us whisper those prayers. So God can't quite hear them. Your kingdom come, we pray, and hope it won't. Your kingdom come, we pray, but not today, not right away. When our earthly kingdoms have had a good year, we don't necessarily long for the kingdom of God to break in. We like our own setup just fine, don't we? What is your perspective? What's mine? Do you live your life with the expectation that Christ could return before I finish my sentence? I must admit, I don't know that most of us do, myself included. Peter had to deal with this even as early as 60 or so years after Christ's ascension. It became routine that quickly, 60 or so years after Christ ascended to heaven. Second Peter chapter 3. Let's look at that. 
2 Peter chapter 3, verse 1. This is now, beloved, the second letter I'm writing to you in which I am stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember the words spoken beforehand by the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and the Savior spoken by your apostles. Know this first of all, that in the last days, mockers will come with their mocking, following after their own lusts and saying, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all continues just as it was from the beginning of creation. Verse 8, but do not let this one fact escape your notice, beloved, that with the Lord one day is like a thousand years and a thousand years like one day. The Lord is not slow about his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief in which the heavens will pass away with a roar and the elements will be destroyed with intense heat and the earth and its works will be burned up. Since all these things are to be destroyed in this way, what sort of people ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness? Peter's asking that question. This is Peter asking that question a mere 60 years after Christ ascended. He says, what sort of people ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness, looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God, in which the heavens will be destroyed by burning and the elements will melt with intense heat. But according to his promise, we are looking for a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found in him, by him in peace, spotless and blameless. And regard the patience of our Lord as salvation. A salvation. You therefore, verse 17, beloved, knowing this beforehand, be on your guard so that you're not carried away by the error of unprincipled men and fall from your own steadfastness. But grow in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To him be the glory both now and to the day of eternity. Amen. As Christians, this day should not overtake us as a thief. Because if we live with the bold perspective of Christ's imminent return, our lives will reflect it and we will not be asleep at the wheel when it happens. Paul addressed that issue very clearly as well as Peter did. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 4 to 6. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. But you brothers are not in darkness so that this day should surprise you like a thief. You are all sons of light and sons of day. We don't belong to the night or to the darkness. So then, let us not be like others who are asleep, but let us be alert and self-controlled. Alert and self-controlled. We often divide people on the, on the God question between whether God exists or not. We often divide them, says Mark Buchanan, between theists and atheists, right? Those who believe in God, those who don't believe that there's a God. He says we need a third category. Apatheists. That's a Vernon Grounds term, old commentator. That's apathy that's joined to theism. Indifference married to a creed. 
Apathists, he says, believe in God, but don't really care. They're glad God is out there somewhere doing something, hearing prayers, spinning planets, but his existence impinges little on their own. It doesn't guide their actions, shape their decisions, correct their attitudes. God is no present urgent reality. Rather, he's a distant, occasionally interesting idea. That hurts. But Peter says serious times demand a serious faith. We don't want to be apatheists, do we? And if you take your faith seriously, you'll manifest this bold perspective and think clearly. The end of all things is at hand. We will operate that way. Like we believe it. And that is exactly what we are to be about as the church of Jesus Christ, giving each other perspective, right? Rick Warren defines perspective as, quote, understanding something because you are seeing it from a larger frame of reference in a spiritual sense. It means seeing life from God's point of view. Are you viewing your everyday life that way with perspective? God's recurring complaint about the nation of Israel was that they lacked perspective and thereby got caught up in living like the rest of the nations all around them. Do you think that's a relevant concept to the church today? Friends, if you want my perspective, not that you need it, but I don't think it's a threat. I think it's a painful reality that we live the same way Israel did. If we had a bold biblical perspective, a worldview rooted in God's view, I think a lot of the divorce statistics would change. I think the amount of sexual promiscuity would change. The amount of bitterness and anger and unforgiveness and lying and impatience and self-centered living within the church community would change. I don't think we would be glued to CNN or Fox News wondering who's going to get voted in as a Supreme Court justice because we're so focused on the supreme justice, right? It doesn't take our attention all the time because our minds are set on the things above, not on the things of this earth. I better be careful. I'm not even on my notes anymore. <laughs> my wife gets nervous when I do that. <laughs> we need to be learning to see things from God's eternal perspective has a practical spiritual benefits to it. Here are just a few. When we have perspective, we have God's perspective, number one, it causes us to love God more. The better we understand him, his ways, his nature, the more we love him, the more we will please him. That's right there in Ephesians 3. Perspective helps us resist temptation. Seeing things from God's point of view makes us realize the long-term consequences of sin are greater than the short-term pleasures of sin. That's Proverbs 14, 12. Perspective helps us handle trials, right? Because we know that there's a far greater glory waiting for us than this temporary afflictions that we suffer. And then finally, perspective protects us from error. If there was ever a time when Christians needed to be grounded in the truth, it is today. I agree with Rick Warren's assessment. The problem, he writes, is not that our culture believes nothing. It believes everything. Syncretism. Syncretism, not skepticism, has always been our greatest enemy. Now listen to Peter. What the church needs is to think clearly. To maintain this bold perspective on God, 
God's perspective. That's what produces spiritual stability in our lives. And right along with a bold perspective, Peter says, secondly, that we will live prayerfully. We're going to be balanced in our thinking. Look at what it says back in 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 7. The end of all things is near. Therefore, right? If you have that perspective, therefore, be of sound judgment and sober spirit. Why? For the purpose of prayer. Basically, he says, be clear-minded, be self-controlled so that you can pray. These words don't need a whole lot of explanation, do they? Sound judgment refers to a balanced, sound mind, self-control, keeping a cool head, staying sane in the midst of an insane world. Peter described it earlier in his letter in 1 Peter chapter 1, in verse 13, he says, so think clearly and exercise self-control. Look forward to the special blessings that will come to you at the return of Jesus Christ. This idea of a sober spirit is similar in meaning, but it refers to more than just an avoidance of a cluttered mind or intoxication. Sobriety means a seriousness of attitude. While the first word refers to staying cool-headed, the second term here that Peter uses says that we are to remain clear-headed. Cool-headed and clear-headed. This is what it says here, right? In uh, verse 7. Sound judgment, sober spirit. Cool-headedness, clear-headedness. Taken together, you know what it means? Take your faith seriously. Does that mean Christians are to be killjoys or pessimists, always walking around with a, a long face? Well, I addressed that just a couple of year, uh, weeks ago. Are we to be so intent on seriousness of life that we're oppressed and depressed by its burdens? Absolutely not. The Bible teaches us otherwise. The joy of the Lord is our strength. Amen? That's one of the things that really hit me this weekend at that conference, is that though these people were so seriously being persecuted for their faith, and they had literally nothing, they still exhibited the joy of the Lord. We watched a video of this church in Pakistan. 600 people in this church praising the Lord in worship. This is a country that persecutes Christians, puts them to death, Sometimes, if they're found out that they are a Christian and there's 600 of them in a church worshiping God exuberantly, they're not keeping it down. That's taking your life, your Christian life seriously, isn't it? And the worship of God seriously. Now, taking our faith seriously expresses itself in this healthy blend of sober confidence and unsuppressed joy. Want a great example of that? Here's one. Uh, it's uh, Chuck Swindoll, as you may know. He's been a preacher for many, many, many years. He takes his Christianity seriously, but he always exhibits this sense of humor. If you listen to him preach at all on the radio, you hear that he laughs a lot. And in a chapter of one of his books entitled Strengthening Your Grip on Attitudes, he relates an incident which, gave, which he gave a series of talks during 
uh, Founders Week at Moody Bible Institute in Chicago. And following one of those talks, he spoke about the attitudes of Paul and Silas in the face of serious situation in Acts chapter 16 when they were imprisoned. They were beaten and dumped in a dungeon. This mistreatment did not steal their joy or dampen their confidence in God. They had determined that they would not be paralyzed by self-pity. Instead of becoming depressed, the sounds of their confident prayers and joyful songs emanated from the stone prison in which they were confined and eventually led to the conversion of a jailer and his family, right? The entire family. And after the talk, a lady he had never met wrote him this letter. I love this. It says, Dear Chuck, I want you to know that I've been here all week and I've enjoyed every one of your talks. I know that they will help me in my remaining years. I love your sense of humor because humor has done a lot to help me in my spiritual life. How else then could I have raised 12 children starting at age 32 and, and not have had a sense of humor. I married at age 31. I didn't worry about getting married. I just left my future to God's will. But every night I hung a pair of men's pants on the bed and I knelt down and I prayed. This is her prayer. Father in heaven, hear my prayer and grant it if you can. I've hung a pair of trousers here. Please fill them with a man. So, so Chuck writes, I, I had a good laugh. In fact, I thought it was such a classic illustration that the, uh, the right mental attitude that we should have in life that I read it to my congregation. And in the congregation that day was half of one of our families, okay? The mom and the sick daughter were at home, but the dad and an older son in his 20s were present. And they heard me read the letter. So the mother, who knew nothing of that letter that morning wrote me a couple of weeks later. She wrote this note. She was brief and to the point. She was concerned about her older son. She said that for the last week or so, he had been sleeping in his bed with a bikini draped over the footboard. <laughs> and she wanted to know if I might know why or if this was something she needed to worry about. George McDonald the writer once said that it's the, it's, it's the heart that's not yet sure of his God that is afraid to laugh in his presence. Thank God we, we can laugh. But being serious about your faith doesn't mean being sour-faced about your faith, right? Philippians chapter 4, Paul wrote these words. Always be full of joy in the Lord. I say it again, rejoice. Let everyone see that you are considerate in all that you do. And remember, the Lord is coming soon. So don't worry about anything. Instead, pray about everything. It's interesting to me, and it hit me this morning for the first time. Believe it or not, I've preached through the whole book of Philippians. I've memorized this verse, these verses. I've, I've read these verses hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of times. But it never struck me that when Paul says, always, rejoice always, and again I will say rejoice. Let your forbearing spirit be known to all men. And be anxious for nothing. But by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, shall guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Christ Jesus. He wrote that to the Philippians. When he was in prison, the jailer and the family that got saved because Paul and Silas were singing and praying out loud, where were they? They were in Philippi. 
There was a Philippian jailer that got saved through that joy. Later on, Paul's writing to this church and he's saying, rejoice always. He had that in his experience. Rejoice in the life Christ has given you and enjoy the good things he's created. But listen, don't let the party distract you from God's purpose. Don't let the party distract you from the purpose for which God saved you and left you on this earth. If pleasure was the ultimate reason that we had for living, he would have taken us to heaven the instant that he saved us. I know too many Christians who did not guard the great treasure of their salvation with enough clear-mindedness or self-control. They do not live as though the end of all things is at hand. Instead, in their carelessness, they allowed other things to walk right in and plunder their life in broad daylight. Again, author Mark Buchanan cautions, great victories have been lost through one unguarded moment. Staggering gains have been reversed for a lack of self-control and sober-mindedness. Brothers and sisters, this world is coming to a close. Instead of fearing it, we need to face it head-on because it's nearer than you and I think it is. It's nearer than it was yesterday. Every day, it's nearer than all of our mundane daily routines lead us to believe. And yet as terrible as that may sound, Peter says to look forward to that day and actually speed up its arrival, to hasten it. Why? Because out of that will emerge a new heaven and a new earth. But first, Peter says, get ready. Get ready. Think clearly. Think clearly and live prayerfully. We prepare ourselves as for any great battle with clearness of mind, stoutness of heart, steeliness of nerve. We get a grip on ourselves. We stare the thing in the face, undaunted, unflinching. We cheer its coming and we do what we can to hasten its arrival. As one pastor notes, he says, and all that is for one purpose. What's it say in 1 Peter here? Do it for the purpose of what? To pray. Pray. Not to fight, not to preach, not to counsel, not to organize, not even to evangelize, Peter says here. It's for the purpose of our prayers. Pastor says, and I agree with him, he says, well, I know myself. And the one thing I'm least inclined to do when all hell breaks loose is to head for the prayer closet. He says, I've had, I have other things, many other things I'm tempted to do first and most and instead. In the face of a storm, I don't want to storm heaven. I just want to storm about. But what's really needed is for me to pray. And to pray well under such circumstances when the sky is falling, when mountains are collapsing, takes exceptional clearness of mind and enormous self-control, doesn't it? Keep your head clear, keep your head cool for the purpose of prayer. And the word Peter uses in this text for prayer is plural. Indicating that all kinds of prayers are the result of a serious mindset. Repeated acts of prayers and a focused attention to prayer is how we get ready 
Listen to the way the message paraphrases 1 Peter 4, verse 7. Eugene Peterson paraphrases like this. Everything in the world is about to be wrapped up, so take nothing for granted. Stay wide awake in prayer. In other words, watch and pray. Watch and pray. It's not just a cliche. That's what Peter says. And do you think that Peter came up with that idea, original idea by himself? Where do you think he got that idea? I think Peter finally got a grip on what Christ was trying to convey to him in the Garden of Gethsemane on the night of Jesus' arrest in Mark chapter 14. Jesus went off to pray and he came back three times to the disciples and they were asleep. And what does Jesus say? Are you asleep? Could you not keep watch for one hour? Keep watching and praying that you may not come into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Watch and pray, Jesus told Peter in the Garden of Gethsemane. And now Peter's telling us right here years later. And you know what? None of this comes naturally, does it? Because the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Our instinct is to fight or flight. Our impulse is to panic, to flail about, to sulk or bolt or holler. The last thing we're inclined to do, says one pastor, in the face of the end is pray. For that we need a good firm grip on ourselves and our faith. Of course, this won't happen unless we start doing it now. That's an interesting insight. And that's exactly what they said this weekend at that conference. If you're not praying now, what makes you think you're going to start when the persecution comes to you? And it will. Because all who attempt to live godly in Christ Jesus, the Bible says, will be persecuted. It's not going to happen unless we start now well before the great and terrible day of the Lord comes. Start now when maybe the most trouble that you face in a day is a burned piece of toast or a flat tire or a flu bug or a few more bills than you have checks. If in this relative moment of calm, he says, when the bulk of your troubles are domestic, not cosmic, trifles, not tragedies, you cultivate the clear-mindedness and self-control to pray, it will serve you well in the day you need it the most. Learn to pray before you react. Before you phone in a flap your child's teacher over some alleged mistreatment your child received in the classroom, pray. Before you fly off the handle over another computer glitch, pray. Before you lose heart because another unexpected car expense comes, pray. While the most and the worst you have to deal with is a downturn in the economy, a downsizing at the office, or a downwind from a poultry farm, he says, pray. Because the habit of prayer will not magically arrive for you in the midst of flaming debris of the apocalypse. You'll have to get it well in hand now and work it into your daily routine now. And then when that day comes, when you need it most, and you can't think straight, your first reaction is going to be to return to what you habitually do without thinking about it, and that should be prayer. Amen? 
And to do that, you need a clear head and self-control. Why? Because 1 Peter 5.8, later on in the next chapter, Peter says, be self-controlled and alert. He says it again. Why? Because your enemy, the devil, prowls about like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. That's why. So friends, the devil's on the prowl. He's hungry. He's cunning. He's aggressive. He's unpredictable. He's licking his chops and he's staring directly at you and me. Because the more effective we become for God, the more delicious we look to Satan. Our best defense is alertness and self-control for the purpose of prayer, to think clearly, to act and live prayerfully. And those are the first two things that Peter says we need to take our faith seriously. We'll pick up some more next time. Because, friends, the end of all things is near. And in the time between now and then, it might just be, those two things might just be what keeps us from ditching the plane. Let's pray. Father, keep us alert. Keep us sober-minded, cool-headed, clear-headed for the purpose of prayer. We ask your forgiveness, Lord God, for being so distracted with other things that we fail to pray when we should. That it's not the thing that we run to first a lot of times. And for those that do have this, this habit so ingrained in their lives, praise the Lord. May you come alongside other people and help them and mentor them and train them to do it. May we as a church body refocus our attention, recognizing the signs of the times, that we would know what we should do as a church. It's not rocket science. It's Jesus' practice that we watch and pray. Help us to do it by the power of your spirit, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.